Well, welcome to Bentry Online. I'm Matt Smith, the engagement pastor here, and I'm excited for today because we're continuing on in our series over the book of Ephesians, where we see who we are and who we are becoming together. And this is a beautiful passage that we get to look into God's word and see what he has for you and for me. And we're in chapter one. There is so much in chapter one. It's mind blowing (laughs) the content that Paul put into this one chapter. What we're going to be looking at today is actually one sentence. So just think about as we're, as we get into it, think of the, the amount that's in one sentence. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And as we join together today, I'm just thankful that you would carve out a part of your day and you would choose to join us here as we join together, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and our only hope. I'm praying for you and thankful that we get this time together. Feel free to hop into the chat. Let us know that you're joining in that way. If you're on Facebook, leave a comment. That would be great as well. You can also go full screen, cast it to another device and join together all who are in your area. And we get to worship together that way. That's amazing as well. However, you're coming to us and wherever you're coming from, I'm thankful that you're here and you are an important part of what God is doing at Bentry. It's Martin Luther King weekend, and it's a time for us to remember this incredible life of someone that God used to usher in incredible change, much needed change into our country here. And so before we go into the worship center, we're going to go back to a special countdown, remembering Dr. King and hearing some of his quotes, some of the things that God put on his heart to speak through him for us to think differently and to see people and to have hope for a different future. And so as we join together today, let's remember and celebrate who Jesus is and how he used Dr. King to better our country. And then we'll go into the worship center together and worship together. I'm so glad you're here. Now let's go and worship.
Well, good morning. Welcome to Bentry. For those of you who are in the room and those of you who are online, thank you so much for joining us. It is always a joy when we get to worship together. Well, as a church, we stand on the shoulders of many great women and men, one of which is Dr. Martin Luther King. We stand on his legacy, and today we honor and celebrate him and what Jesus did through him. Because it was 2,000 years ago that Jesus wandered the countryside, healing broken bodies and hearts and preaching a message of love, life, and hope. And Jesus continued this mission through Dr. King in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, when we see pictures of Dr. King, they're most often pictures of him in black and white, but it really wasn't that distant in our history that it required the church to stand up for justice and righteousness. And for us today, for me, I, I admire Dr. King and what he did. And because today we admire him, we often forget that in his day, he was hated and he was persecuted. And he really faced difficulties. I just recently listened to a message that he did where he talked about a call he received at midnight. And when he received a phone call, I mean, he talked about in this message that there were days where he would get up to 40 phone calls to his house where it was threats on him and his life. And there was one night, it came in at midnight. His daughter was three months old and her life was threatened. And it was that night as he spent time with Jesus, Jesus reminded him of the call that he had on his life. And Jesus made the promise to him that he would be with him as he courageously spoke a message of hope. So whether it was in the streets, in the churches, or at the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King preached a message of love, never hate, he called people to peacefully protest and he courageously stood up calling our nation to live up to its promise that all people were created equal. So today we celebrate what Jesus did through this man and I want all of us to take some time and just as we head into worship, let's pause and let's ask Jesus to speak into us how he may want to use us to continue this work of ministry and reconciliation and justice. What might it look like for you and I to lean into the leading of the Spirit, to live as those who have been reconciled to Christ and go as reconcilers into this world? So church, let's stand. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who has deep passion for all of us, every single soul. And let's remember what he did for us and to us and let's dream of what he could do through us as he loves the world around us. Let's sing the good news of the gospel together this morning.
Jesus, your mercies are new every single morning. And that mercy is based on this simple foundational truth that sin, shame, death in the grave have no place in our story in you. They have no place in our story in you, Jesus. That death here in this life is nothing to be feared because you rose beyond it. Jesus, you say in your word that you came to give us life and life abundantly. And so it's not just this eternal expectation for an eventual kingdom that may never manifest itself here, but God, you brought your kingdom here and now. So Jesus, we celebrate your mercy this morning. We celebrate your goodness. And we sit and we rest in that truth that where a lamb had been slain, a lion rose up. We love you, Jesus. We're grateful for time to gather and to worship together. It's in your name that all your kids said, amen. Amen, you can be seated. Oh, it is so great to worship and sing of the victory we have in Jesus. And, and I just wanted to say a quick, hey, thank you, worship team, for leading us today. What a beautiful time of worship. Steve, dude, on the drums, man, you're, you were worshiping with some passion today and was really moving my heart, man. So I just want to say a quick shout out to you. Thank you, dude. I love my drummers and eggs cage-free, so uh, there's also that. It was... So good. He's, he was, I don't know if you saw, he was trolling his drumsticks and he was, he was vibing, fixing his eyes on Jesus. Well, hey, if this is your first time to Bentry, I'm Steve Frizzell, one of the pastors here. We are so glad that you came to Bentry today to worship with all of us. We're so, so glad that you're here. Uh, if you are new and you have some questions and you're curious, a couple things I want you to know is after service, we have a guest gathering. I'll tell you about that at the very end of our service. Another thing that you can do is take your phone and you can scan the QR code of the seat back in front of you. If you're in one of the front row seats, it's gonna be on the armrest near you. That'll give you some, uh, uh, a bunch of links of just different things about Bentry uh, that will help you discover more of who we are. For those of us who Bentry is our home and you want to give financially support the ministries of Bentry, uh, you can do that uh, with the boxes in the back of the room and here in person, or you can scan the QR code. For those of you who are online, there is a link that's going up in the chat. If you don't have chat opened up, you can do that now. Well, God created us and designed us to do life with other people. It's part of how he made us. He made us with this thing in us where we do life with other people. It's how he made us. And it, that is the reason why within all of us, we have this need inside of us. We all want to belong. We all want a space and relationships where we can be fully known. We want to live without the fear of rejection. We all have this need inside of us where we want to be fully relaxed and feel safe with others. And the reason we have that need is because God made that need in us because he made us to do life with other people. Now, while we all have this longing to belong and we all want deep relationships, we want connection and intimacy with other people, we do have that fear within us though, the fear of being vulnerable. We're afraid of rejection. So we live in this tension often where we want real deep relationships and community, but we also have this fear of being vulnerable and what happens if I really truly relax around other people. And so there's this tension that we all feel in different seasons. And, and here's, here's what I wanna encourage all of us to consider today. is pushing back or pushing past that fear of being vulnerable and stepping into relationships and community within a faith community here at Bentry. 
We have a variety of groups and classes and all kinds of ways where you can experience belonging with others as you go through your journey in faith and discovering Jesus in your life and him. So uh, I'm, for me, I, I, I feel, feel the tension of, can I really be myself? Do I really wanna be vulnerable? But I also feel the thing of, I really wanna be in community with others. And so I've seen that when I do push beyond that fear, it's always worth it. I'm in a small group. We have a life group that we're in, uh, meets at our house. And I love when Thursday nights roll around and I get to spend time with the people I'm in community with. A lot of times when we think of groups, we think of life groups because you've probably heard about that. Maybe you've been at a church that's done that. Maybe you've done it here. We would love for you to step into a relationship and it could be within one of our life groups. But we also have a variety of other different types of groups and classes. We have support groups that really meet very specific needs. And we have classes that cover very various different topics. A recent class that I went through was a class called Let's Talk Race. It was a five-week class that helped me discern and understand more of the tension that there is ethnically in our community and in our world. And helped me understand more of what it looks like for me to live out what we see in Ephesians chapter uh, two, to live as a reconciled reconciler. It equipped me with more understanding and, and a way to listen and a way to step into hard conversations. So for you, there could be a, a class for you, or it could be a group for you. We've got men's groups, women's groups, support groups, a whole variety of different types of groups. So here's what I wanna invite you to do is pray and consider hopping into a group and pushing back, pushing past that fear of that fear of rejection, that fear of vulnerability. If you're interested in a group, again, you can scan that QR code and it'll give you some information there. We can get all kinds of things um, around groups there. Or if you wanna talk to somebody and you're here on, uh, on campus in person today, out in our lobby, there's that big green banner that says sign up today. We'll have some of our staff and pastors underneath there later uh, today after the service and you can connect with them and ask them any questions that you have. Well, as we start our sermon here in a moment, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter one, verse three. An artisan is known by the work of their hands. The act of creating is all-encompassing. It's physical, mental, and emotional with care and intention focused on every move to coax what was just an idea, a sketch, a plan, out of the immaterial and into reality. God made us all from clay. And that same compassionate tenderness, that same gritty, determined vigor is directed at and infused in us. We are all materials in the master's hands, and he is patiently refining, cultivating, and attuning us to his dynamic, purposeful design. But the sculpting is not without change, pain, and correction. Like wood must be carved and leather softened, we have to submit ourselves to the process of being recreated, trusting ourselves into our Father's hands and believing that our lives in those hands are far better works of art than anything we could create on our own. So grateful for our creative team. And that video series that we're watching right before the sermon, it's going to build on itself. 
And there'll be a pretty sweet moment at the end where you get to see the whole picture. But a thought I want you to grab a hold of from that video series today, at least what you saw, is about the artisan and the design of a craftsman or a craftswoman or an artisan and how that comes to pass and all that is involved in taking an idea to flourishing. There was a woman by the name of Hetty Green who lived towards the end of the late 19th century. And here's a picture of Miss Green, and she's unique because she was one of the first wealthiest women in the world. Oftentimes in the late 19th century, most wealth belonged to men, but she was an investor on Wall Street and had incredible wealth. In fact, they say she earned sometimes up to $200,000 a day. It's a lot of money. In fact, the city of New York would often come to Hetty Green to get loans when the city was struggling to stay afloat. She was incredibly wealthy. But what's fascinating about Hetty Green's story is that though she was one of the wealthiest people in the world, she actually lived in poverty. She was nicknamed America's Miser, M-I-S-E-R, meaning she, though she had a lot of money and wealth, spent as little as possible. She was so frugal, actually so incredibly cheap. She wore only one dress until that black dress, this is what she wore, that black dress literally was so worn out, she couldn't wear it any longer. In fact, they say that she would only wash the dirtiest parts of her garment because she wanted to save money on soap. In the winter in New York City, she refused to turn on heat because she didn't want to pay for the electricity bill. And she would cook her oatmeal with cold water only. It's told that her son once got a leg injury and she spent all night, this wealthy woman in New York, all night looking for a free clinic. And hours later, by the time she finally found a free clinic, they had to amputate his leg because it had become so infectious. Historians write about her, this mystery, this incredibly wealthy woman who lived in poverty. Now, it is a good idea to not spend money you don't have. And maybe that's all the resolution you need in 2023, okay? Don't spend more money than you have. But sometimes I think what may be worse than trying to spend money we don't have is having unlimited resource and not being aware of it. It's to be incredibly wealthy like Hetty Green, to have everything at your disposal and either not be aware of it or not use it, to not enjoy it, to not cherish it, to not use it for your good or the well-being of others around you, to have everything given to you and not realize it. Last week, we began a message series going through the book of Ephesians. And we're discovering in this book who we are and who we are becoming. And last week, we began to unpack through verse 1 and 2 who we are as saints in Ephesus. Saints of God in whatever city or town you live in, you are a saint of God. Now, part of what made Ephesus unique was that some of the largest banks all across Asia were in Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city that was on the... Uh, coast of modern-day Turkey, right along the Mediterranean Sea, and it connected trade from North Africa, all of Europe and Asia Minor. So it was the center of commerce. The, the, the current-day Wall Street was placed there in Ephesus. People made a lot of money in Ephesus. I think it's fascinating that in the letter of Ephesians, Paul uses so many financial terms like down payment, inheritance, riches, because he's writing to a group of people who are familiar with those terms, and yet he does not want these early believers, or you and I, 
to live in spiritual poverty. He wants us to realize the incredible riches of grace that have been given to you. He does not want us to be like Hetty Green spiritually, who have received this deposit of riches in God by the power of his grace, privileges because we are positioned in Christ and yet never withdraw from a spiritual bank account. So today I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians 1 and we're going to be in verse 3 to 14. And these, for us in the English Bible, there are 11 verses. But in the Greek, this section of scripture is one long sentence. It's actually a run-on sentence. One super long sentence. Because I think as Paul thought about all of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, he ran out of words. I'm sorry, he didn't run out of words. He ran out of breath. 257 words in one sentence. It's as long as the Gettysburg Address. In one sentence. I think he would have preached fast, so I give myself the permission to preach a little quick. Because he didn't run out of words, he ran out of breath. But Paul, while in prison, begins to think about the spiritual blessings he has. And notice his response. And what he invites us to, this statement of praise and worship, thinking about our spiritual riches in Christ. Paul begins by verse 3 saying, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Blessed be God, worshiped, praised, lifted up be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Out of all the blessings we have in life, what's better than financial blessings, physical, familial blessings? It's our spiritual blessings. But if you're like me, maybe you spent at the end of 2022 thinking about all the blessings. And oftentimes, we often think of the spiritual blessings maybe on the last of the list. We may think about our job or family or promotion or the gifts we get to experience. But yet Paul is saying the greatest blessing that you've already received, one you could not have attained on your own, is your spiritual blessing. It's what you already have in Christ. You are so blessed with everything unimaginable in Christ. And sometimes I think we lack passion in worship because we don't quite realize how blessed we are in Christ. Or we might have convinced ourselves that all of the spiritual blessings aren't good enough and we need more. And either way, whichever camp you land in, we may run after lesser blessings in the world. Blessings of the world giving you approval and significance and title and validation because we haven't quite understood or appreciated the blessings we already have in Christ. Now, we're about to unpack in just a few verses the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. But before we do so, it's important to keep in our mind this particular word, Trinity. Trinity. If you've been around church for a while, you probably have heard this word. Maybe this is your first time to think about what is this word Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't actually appear in the Bible, but its reality, its truth is found all over the Bible. Christ followers since the end of the second century began to think about God as a Trinity or a triune God. And the word Trinity simply means that we have one God who exists in three persons. One God who manifests himself 
exists in three persons. We don't have three different gods. We have one God. And we don't have one God who changes forms and becomes three different people. No, no, no. He is one God uniquely forever existing in three persons. So the persons of the Trinity are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are all equally God, one in essence, glorifying each other, and unique, distinct in persons. Now this is important to keep in our mind as we go through this passage, because as Paul begins to outline our spiritual blessings, he does so in respect to each persons of the Trinity. He talks about our blessing in the Father, our blessing in the Son, and our blessing in the Spirit. It's all three equally a part of our blessing. And it's important because I think sometimes we, when we think about the Father in terms of our salvation, we have this view for the Father to be this mean, wrathful, judgmental God. He's not loving. He is cruel. He is wrathful. He's judgmental. And then we think of Jesus as being this heroic Savior. And intentionally or unintentionally, we might actually pit the Father and the Son against each other. Well, the son has to be this hero that rescues us from the wrath of God. The father is a bad cop and the son is a good cop. And then about the Holy Spirit, well, we don't really know what to do with him, so we might just ignore him. Like he's a weird uncle at the dinner table. You know he's there, but we don't know what to do with him, so we don't talk about him. Let's just not address who he is, right? Well, to remove any person of the Trinity is to put our whole salvation in jeopardy. You need all three. All three are equally involved. All three are equally invested. And they are critically needed for us to be saved. You remove one person within the Trinity and we cannot be saved. All three are critical to our spiritual blessing, to our salvation. So if you take a note, you can write these three words as we think about the role of the three persons of the Trinity in our salvation. The Father is the architect of our redemption. He architects our redemption. He plans, he chooses, he designs the plan of our salvation. He architects our salvation. The Son administers our salvation. He carries out the plan of the Father. He executes the plan of our salvation. The Son administers our redemption, our salvation, and the Spirit applies it. The Spirit personally, individually applies it to you. The Father architects, the Son administers, and the Spirit applies. We need all three. Now Paul begins to speak of our Father's blessing, our blessing in the Father. When we think about spiritual blessings, and now he begins to list out all of our blessings in respect to each person of the Trinity. So here is our blessing in the Father. Verse 4 onwards, For he, meaning the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In our home, in our marriage, I have to work harder at being thoughtful than my wife Stacy. I have to work harder at planning ahead. It just so naturally comes for her. And she can think about buying a gift and buy the gift and wrap the gift a whole month before we go to a birthday party. She plans so ahead. While me, on the other hand, I'm on the way to the birthday party and thinking, we should probably get a gift. 
She's like, no, honey, I've already taken care of this. She's planned ahead. Last night she came home having already bought all of the Valentine's Day gifts for Liam's classmates. And I haven't thought about Valentine's Day since last February the 14th. <laughs> Gentlemen, we are less than a month away. And your wife is probably already thinking about Valentine's Day. But we should be planning ahead, thinking ahead about those that we deeply love. And Paul says here that the Father chose you and I in him when? Before the foundation of the earth was laid. Wow, think about how far ahead he planned for you. Because he loved you so much. He wanted to choose you. It brought great delight to him. He planned ahead and chose you before the foundation of the earth were laid. You know what that means? That means even before humanity committed their first sin, the plan of God to save humanity was already in motion. Isn't that mind-boggling? That the triune God held a council in eternity. And they not only conspired, thought about, considered how to create you and I, but how to save you and I. It was already set in motion before the foundation of the earth were laid. That's why when Adam and Eve commit their first sin in Genesis 3.15, the father comes to them and he doesn't create a plan of how to save them. He simply tells them the plan. The seed of the woman would strike the head of Satan and Satan would bruise his heel. The cross and the crucifixion thousands of years before it happened was already set in motion. Before we even needed to be saved, God planned ahead. He thought of you and chose you. Paul says he didn't have to do this. He wasn't coerced. He did this according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will. When we think about pleasure and delight in the world, we may look at the sun and the moon, the galaxies, the expanding universe, thinking that's what gives such great delight and pleasure. Maybe the macro nature of the world or the micro details of the world. Wow, we are filled with astounding wonder. But the God who made all of that found a greater pleasure in choosing you because you are of greater priority to him. Before he hung the moon or put the sun in its place, he thought of you because you were his priority. He found pleasure in saving you and coming after you. For the Father chose us in him. And what is it that we're chosen for? Paul says we are chosen, verse 4, to be holy and blameless in love. Verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Two things we were chosen for, predestined for one, we were chosen in him to be holy and blameless. Second of all, we were adopted, predestined rather, to be adopted as sons and daughters. Now I want you to follow with me. This is beautiful. Holy and blameless speak of our new nature. Holiness speaks of this inward purity. It speaks of our spiritual reality that we have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but he, this holy Christ who lives in and through me. It is inward purity. We are made holy. He chose us to be holy. And the word blameless in the Greek speaks of not simply inward purity, but external purity. The word picture there is blemish or spots on our fruit. 
So when you put these two words together, what is it that the Father has chosen us to be? He's chosen us to be both holy and blameless. This inward purity in the person of Christ, this inward reality that manifests itself in external purity as well. What Paul is saying is that the Father has chosen you to experience the total reverse of the effects of sin. The absolute reverse of the effects of sin. No longer broken, but whole. No longer sinful, but holy. No longer polluted or selfish or lustful or greedy or, or self-centered. No, no, no. Both holy and blameless in him. And how? We're holy and blameless before him in love. We stand that way in love, not out of fear, but in love as the love of God penetrates deep through our soul, motivating our love for him and our love for one another. Holy and blameless. Holiness and blameless speak of our new nature. We're chosen to be holy and blameless, and we're predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters. So while we experience or receive a new nature through regeneration, we're made holy and blameless, through regeneration, we receive a new status through adoption. You don't just get a new nature in Christ. You receive a new status through adoption. This is fascinating because it is the status that we now have in Christ that brings us to a better position than even Adam and Eve before the fall. Because we don't just return to the nature of holy and blameless. No, no, no. We now are adopted to a new status through adoption. Now follow with me. In ancient times, the term adoption didn't just speak to adoption for rescuing a child. It spoke to adoption as a legal change of status. That it wasn't just ch children or babies who were adopted. It was grown people. And a wealthy family in first century Rome could choose to adopt an adult male either because they didn't have biological children to pass on their inheritance and estate or because they didn't trust their biological son or daughter to take on their inheritance or estate. I feel sorry for those kids. So they could pursue this journey of adoption where they would adopt a male adult in those days to receive a legal status change. And the moment they were adopted, that adopted son would be fully able to claim legally the rights the position, the possession, the inheritance, the authority, the privileges that came with being an adopted son. So everything that his adopted father had, he now has. It was a change in status, a legal status. And according to Roman law, a father could deny rights to a biological child, but if that father had adopted a son, the rights to that adopted son could never be denied. Meaning, you had more security as an adopted son in first century than even a biological one. So see the parallels here. God chose us, giving us a new nature, but he also predestined us to be adopted, to give us a new status. And there on the cross, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the rightful Son of God, He is crucified. He is forsaken so that we could be accepted. And there, Jesus is treated in a way we deserve to be treated. 
so that for the rest of our lives, we could be treated in a way that Jesus deserved to be treated. We are now given not just a new nature, but a new status, going from foreigners to family, enemies of God to children of God, outside of God's grace, now one with him in the beloved. And Father, for the rest of our lives, sees us on the account of the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So in God, you have rights that you didn't have before. You have privileges, a status, a position in Jesus we no longer, we didn't have before. Not just a new nature of being holy and blameless, but a new status, change given to us on the account of Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's what the old status gave us, fear. But now you've got a new status. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's what your new status allows you to do, to go to the throne of grace, to go to God Almighty, not out of fear, but out of joy, and cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's who you are. A status has changed and a nature has changed. Chosen to be holy and blameless. Adopted to be sons and daughters. Now we can't often think of the words like chosen, predestined without our minds wandering into the debate of election and free will. Maybe not for everyone, but maybe for some of you, you're thinking, maybe that's the only reason you came to church today. Okay, what's he going to tell me about election versus free will? Because it's in this passage. Does God sovereignly choose those that he saves, or does our free will do it? Which one is it? Yes, yes. yes amen. <laughs> I stand with my feet firmly planted in both camps by the sovereign grace of God. It's both and. It's not either or. It's God chooses us by his sovereign grace. He elects us. And by his sovereign grace, we are totally involved. I want to give you a list of verses. We're not going to take the time, and I'm not going to attempt to resolve this tension for you, but I do want to give you a list of scripture that I hope you'll take some time and go through because the same New Testament, the same inspired word of God lays out for us both of these things, and they're both true. They're equally true. Yes, we are predestined before the foundations of the world was laid. Yes, we are chosen by God. And no one could ever come to Jesus without the Father drawing us. That is true. We are elect. And at the same time, the Bible says that God desires for all mankind to be saved, not just some. That the work of Jesus on the cross was an atoning sacrifice, not for some, but for all. The life of Jesus was given as a ransom, not for some, but for all. Peter would get up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and he would say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Yes, elect, chosen before the foundation of the world, and yes, our free will totally involved. In fact, Jesus put both of these realities in one sentence, and I love this. In John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. That's election chosen. Everyone the Father gives me will come. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, anyone who comes to me, everyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. 
chosen elect, let whomever come, let him come. I will never cast them out. Charles Spurgeon, who actually identified himself as a Calvinist, also said that he didn't agree with all points of Calvinism. So I don't know what that makes him. But here's something he said that was so powerful. He said, the system of truth revealed in the scriptures is not simply one straight line, but two. And no man will ever get the right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. The modern day imagery of this is the two rails on a railroad track. Parallel, never to meet, but they're both incredibly necessary. These two facts, divine sovereignty and human freedom, are parallel lines. I cannot make them meet, neither can anyone make them cross each other. It's like you look at a building right in front of it, you can maximum see two sides, but you get on a helicopter, now you can see all four sides. It's a change of perspective. On this side of eternity, we can't quite make them cross the way we would want to in our human minds. But one day we will see how these parallel lines meet. Dr. W.A. Criswell, he said it like this, one day when we approach the gates of heaven, we will see written over them, whosoever will may come. And when we pass through those gates and standing on the other side, look back, we will see the words, elect from the foundation of the world. On this side of eternity, the pearly gates read, whosoever may come, let him come. Drink of the water of life freely. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And as soon as we cross those gates, we look back and it says, elect from the foundation of the earth. They're both true. I think for me, there's two things that give me such peace about these truths of God. One, predestination, election, God choosing us, is not so much about a sequence of events as much as it is about the character of God. God exists outside of time. He doesn't see sequence like we do, but what is true about God is his character to choose. His desire, his ability to choose those that are not worthy of being chosen. That's what this reveals. God, by the nature of his loving, gracious character, chooses us. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 8 puts it like this. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you. That's the heart of God. That's the character of God. Why did he choose us? I can't figure it out, but I know it's because he loved me. It's been said, I'm grateful that God chose me before I was born because I'm not so sure he would have chosen me after I was born. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's, I don't know if it's true or not. Because God who exists outside of time, he knew every day of your life. He saw your past, present, future. He saw the worst of your days, the most rebellious of your days, the most sinful of your days. And he's seeing it all, says, I still choose you. I still love you. I choose you for me. The second thing that gives me peace about this is when Paul writes Ephesians and Romans and other epistles, he's not just speaking about individuals being chosen like duck, duck, goose, you're chosen and you're not. He wants to convince Jews that now categorically Gentiles are being chosen by God. Jews had spent their whole life thinking that simply by their pedigree and religious tradition they would be saved no matter their faith. 
And that Gentiles inversely could never be saved, no matter their faith. Paul is saying, actually, you got it wrong. God has already chosen. He's already determined in a way that cannot be altered, that he has chosen both Jews and Gentiles. It's not our pedigree that saves us. It's not our ethnical, ethnical identity that, changed, that saves us. It is faith in the Lord Jesus, ultimately. And only God has chosen himself for a people, Jew, Gentile, to be made one. So these are not tensions to fight over. These are truths to rest in, to rejoice in, to be in awe of the character and the goodness of God. Amen? Amen. So the Father, our blessing in the Father is that he has chosen us. And now Paul will say, how is it that he's chosen? And he begins to give us our blessing in the Son, in the Beloved, in Jesus. So if the blessing of the Father is we are chosen, we are adopted. Here is the blessing in the Son, verse 7 onwards. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure again that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. I want you to underline the word redemption or highlight it in your Bible, the word redemption. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, redemption simply meant deliverance by the payment of a ransom. Deliverance, freedom, by the payment of a ransom. In the Old Testament, if a prisoner was captured and put in prison or a slave wanted to be free, the only hope was for a near kinsman or a relative to come by and pay the price of their freedom, a ransom. That's the only way that a prisoner or a slave could be set free, for someone to pay the price because they couldn't earn the price. They had to be able to pay the price of their freedom. And this is what the New Testament writers are describing, that Jesus would come and he, through his blood, would pay the high cost of our freedom, that he and his life would be the price of our ransom. The Bible teaches that the whole world at one point were in bondage to sin, that we were in bondage to Satan, to sin, and to the effects, the consequence of our sin. Someone had to pay the price, and no matter how hard we try, we couldn't pay the price. Why? Because God didn't just require goodness, he required perfection. And we all fell so short. We were in bondage and so much of the world is still in bondage. You look around, you see pointless shootings and, and senseless wars, abuse, injustice, prejudice of all kinds still in the world. It's because much of the world still has yet to experience the freedom for which Christ came. But Christ came to set us free. He came to be the price, the perfect son of God, entered our story so that he could be the price of our ransom. 
Jesus, in fact, in Matthew would say that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So how did he do it? What was the price of the ransom? Paul is sure to tell us in Ephesians 1 that we have redemption not simply through the death of Jesus, but specifically through the blood of Jesus. That we are free not by the death of Jesus merely, but by the blood of Jesus. And what that statement refers to is all of the Old Testament narrative about the sacrificial system. And that blood had to be shed. Blood from a sacrificial animal had to be shed in hopes of forgiveness. And now Jesus didn't simply come as a mourner to die for us. But he came to be a sacrifice for us. He's not simply a benevolent martyr. No, no, no. He is a sacrifice who would by his blood save us and redeem us. Because only his blood was sufficient, was sufficient to redeem us. That's what Peter would say like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with the perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious, say with me, blood of Jesus Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Does that sound familiar? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Capture this in your mind. The moment the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, Jesus volunteered to be the sacrifice. Jesus wasn't chosen. He volunteered. He was not predestined. He was foreknown. Because the Son knew that the plan of the Father's plan of salvation for us couldn't be achieved without the perfect offering of his own blood. So when you were chosen before the foundation of the world, Christ volunteered. He said, I'll go. I'll pour out my blood, my perfection, so that humanity could be saved. So that's what he did. On the cross, he would pour out the last ounce of his perfect blood, spotless, without blemish, as the price of our Redemption. And here's the thing. If you were to be bought back from God or bought out of the hand of God, something more valuable would have to be given than the blood of Jesus. Something more precious would have to be offered. Something more pure would have to be offered. But friends, can I tell you, there is nothing more powerful, nothing more precious, nothing more valuable than the blood of Jesus. Therefore, your freedom is secure. Because our Father has already paid the highest price, the blood of His Son. Your freedom is absolutely secured in Him. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. And the forgiveness of our sins. How? According to the riches of His grace. Paul doesn't say that God gives us forgiveness out of the riches of his grace, but according to the riches of his grace. And that's the world of difference. You don't want a wealthy person like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk to give you out of their riches. You want them to give you according to their riches, don't you? According to their riches. There's a world of difference. There's a little boy who 
went to the grocery store with his mom and they were at the counter to check out and at the counter was a jar of candy and there, there was a sign on the jar of candy that says, please take a handful of candy for yourself. So the boy and his mom are at the counter and the clerk says, son, you can have a handful of candy. And the son said, no. It shocked his mom, it shocked the clerk. So the clerk said, son, you don't want a handful of candy. He said, sir, could you give me a handful of candy? So the clerk was so kind and benevolent and gave him a handful of candy. So they go on the way home and the mom was puzzled and said, son, you've never refused a handful of candy. Why did you say no? Of course, you know where this is going. He looked at his mom and said, it's because his hands were bigger than mine. His hands were bigger than mine. He gave according to the size of his hand, not according to the size of my hand. Jesus forgives us according to the riches of his grace. Meaning that we don't receive forgiveness based on our capacity to grab a hold of it. We receive forgiveness based on his capacity to give it. And it's incalculable. It's limitless. Aren't you glad for the riches of God's grace according to which he pours out day after day for past, present, future. He keeps dishing out. Grace upon grace, unlimited. Now there is this third blessing that we're going to pick up next week. Blessed in the Father, blessed in the Son, and Paul says we are also blessed in the Spirit. What is the blessing of the Spirit in him? Verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. When you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to jump into this next week. Now, I don't think this is talking about that one moment when you received the Holy Spirit. This is talking about an evidence that you belong to God. An identifiable evidence that you are authentically the child of God. It speaks of our permanence in Christ. The visible nature of the joy of the Spirit. The boldness of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit working in and through you. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. I was thinking about what is the God we can take home from this list of passages in the scripture, and I came across the Hebrew word, deyunu, deyunu. And this is actually not just a word, it's a song that's sung by Jewish families around the time of the Passover, deyunu, and this word simply means it would have been enough. So what Jewish families will do at the Passover time is they sing the song, and the verses of the song go through the whole story of the Jewish people. And the essence of the idea is that even if God never did anything again, they you knew. It would have been enough. So here's, some, I'm going to read a few lines for you. If he had brought us out of Egypt and had not carried out judgments against them, they you knew. It would have been enough. If he had carried out judgments against them and not against their idols, they you knew. It would have been enough. If he had destroyed their idols and not smitten their firstborn, they you knew. It would have been enough. If he had smitten their firstborn and not given us their wealth, they you knew. If he had given us their wealth and not split the sea for us, they you knew. If he split the sea for us but had not taken us through the dry land, they you knew. It would have been enough. 
If he had taken us to the dry land and had not drowned our oppressors in it, they unit and it goes through the whole story of their journey to the wilderness and receiving manna, receiving the Torah, receiving the promised land and living in the promised land and living in the temple. But the idea is he's done so much that if he never did anything again, it would have been enough that you knew. So this week, as you are tempted by the world to keep pursuing titles and validation and blessings, lesser blessings, may this phrase creep up in your heart that you knew he's done enough. If you never have another answered prayer that you knew, it would have been enough. If you never experienced another blessing in life that you knew, it would have been enough. Isn't it enough? Notice our blessing through the passages we read. In Christ, because of him, we are so blessed. And here is our blessing. We are chosen. We are holy. We are blameless. We are loved. We are adopted. We are sons. We are daughters. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We have an inheritance. We are sealed and secured forevermore, church. Amen. Isn't it enough? You've got everything you need in Christ. Remember, Paul is in prison saying it's enough. He's done enough. He's writing to first century slaves saying we have every blessing we could ever imagine. It's enough. Because perhaps the way to answer the question of is it enough is, is he enough? Is he enough? In this passage, Paul lists out these blessings and then he says, this is our response. And three times after each section, here's what the Father has done, he would say to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's what the Son has done to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's what we have in the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glorious grace. It's our blessing, our response. We together collectively, corporately have received this. It's not just individually. We have collectively receive this and collectively we respond in worship to the praise of his glorious grace. Would you stand on your feet today? Today we want to let these truths take deep root in our heart. You already have in Christ everything you need. Chosen, elected, adopted, sealed, secure with full inheritance and a down payment securing what is yet to come. And Paul said in these verses that God did all of this with full understanding and wisdom. Meaning he had no buyer's remorse. It wasn't like he saved you and then thought about it. No, I probably shouldn't have saved him or her. No, no, he saw your full story and he still chose you with full understanding, full grace, because that is the riches of the grace of God. So Father, we just open our heart in worship in awe of the blessings one after another we have in Christ. Blessings that can never be taken. Security, steadfastness because of your faithfulness. So Father, may we be a people here at Bentry who don't live in spiritual poverty, forgetting or not recognizing all that we have in Christ. But may we delight in it. May we enjoy it. May we withdraw from it every day, thankful, rejoicing in who we are already. And our response is praise. Our response is worship. Come on, church, can you give Jesus a thanksgiving of praise because of all the blessings you already have in Christ. Let's sing about him.
King Jesus. He's the one that's holy and he's the one that's redeemed us. He's the one that laid down his life and washed us with his blood. Let's let this powerful truth of what we looked at today, that we really have received every blessing in the heavenly realms through Christ Jesus, let's let that actually change the way we live today. Like, let's just sing about it and think about it here. Let's let this actually impact the way we love and listen and walk through life. I'm thinking of the very beginning of the message, Hetty Green, where it's like she has all this all these riches, yet she lived in poverty. Can we make a commitment to not do that today and walk out of here in light of the truth of the fact that we have been blessed in Jesus. You are holy, you are loved, you are redeemed, you are sealed, you are adopted sons and daughters. That's true. Let's live in that truth. Hey, right now, uh, for those of you who are worshiping online, Matt's gonna share with you some next steps uh, for you, and uh, I'm gonna share some with the people in the room. Well, I'm so glad we had this chance to get to worship together today, and I'm so glad that you would carve out a part of your day to join us, to look to Jesus, to open God's word together in Ephesians and to see this incredible text, this one sentence that Paul wrote about the goodness of God, the majesty of God, that he chose you, he chose me. And he's invited us into an intimate relationship where we choose him back. And in response to him, being fully blessed, we walk with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ who loves us and gave himself for us to redeem us, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and given an inheritance in him. And I would love for you to spend some time this week connecting with people in your area, sharing with them what God's been teaching you, what God's been doing with you online and share with it offline, that you would just let people know as you are experiencing who Jesus is, you allow him to flow through you to share his life and love with the people around you. We have sermon questions ready that if you would like to continue the conversation we began, you can continue that on in the groups that you're with, that you have. You could share the service with friends and family and then continue the conversation that way as well. I'm so glad we had this chance to worship together, and I can't wait for us to do it again next week as we look back in the book of Ephesians next week to see what God has in store for you and for me, to see who we are and who we are becoming. I'm praying for you and can't wait to worship again together next week. We'll see you then.